Hey guys, and welcome to the God Besotted Podcast. I'm your host, Karina, and I am so glad that you're here. Each week on this show, we dig into God's Word to delight in God more. I think it's going to be a good time, so let's just get right into it. Well, in the past few years, I have had a lot of trouble with my wisdom teeth. The day I got married, as in right after my wedding, my husband and I went to Taco Bell. And don't judge us for that, but we went to Taco Bell, we took it back to the apartment, and the moment that I bit into my beefy nacho griller, I knew, I knew something was amiss. I knew something, something was wrong. I felt this sharp pain in the back of my mouth, and I vaguely wondered if maybe one of the wisdom teeth that the dentist had suggested that I get pulled out a few months prior actually needed, in fact, to be pulled out. And, you know, went to sleep not knowing what was what. And the next morning when I woke up with severe pain and some light facial swelling, I knew what was wrong. And I'll spare you the saga that ensued, but suffice it to say it was not pleasant. I ended up having wisdom teeth surgery for that tooth after my honeymoon, and um, it wasn't a fun time. A year or so later, having delayed the inevitable for as long as I could, I had to have the other three wisdom teeth removed. And this time, when I had the surgery, I had mixed emotions. On the one hand, there was pain. There was crying. And you can ask my husband, at one point, since the dentist sent me home with just normal ibuprofen for the pain, and that's all, uh, there was even weeping. But even in that pain, there was a sense of peace, of joy even, because it was done. It was over. I had no more wisdom teeth, and I was never going to have to think about those four pesky molars ever again. And scripture teaches that if you are in Christ, you are to abide in the triune God for one reason, a reason that is both surprising and thrilling. As John 15, 11 puts it, it's so that your joy may be made full. As Christians, we are called to complete joy, to total and eternal joy experienced through our union with God in Christ. And along the way, in this life, we will experience sorrow, real pain. We will cry real tears. But even in that weeping, there is joy. And certainly we know after that weeping, there will be joy. My hope and my prayer is that Psalm 30 reorients us to the truth that God is for us and he loves us endlessly. Even when our own pride leads us into a pit, he is there to pull us out and to draw us close. He is there to make sure that we live in the purpose for which we were created, to find our deepest joy in him so that he is glorified in us. So with that, let's read Psalm 30. Psalm 30, a psalm, a song at the dedication of the house, a psalm of David. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and have not let my enemies rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you healed me. 
O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have kept me alive that I would not go down to the pit. Sing praise to the Lord, you his godly ones, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Now as for me, I said in my prosperity, I will never be moved. O Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountain to stand strong. You hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I called, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my blood if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness, that my soul may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Such a beautiful psalm, and we are going to waste no time just digging right into it. We're told in the title that it is a psalm, a song at the dedication of the house of David. We don't know, frankly, what the title of the psalm means, or at least we don't know exactly what it's referring to. What house is being dedicated? One possibility is that it's David's house, his royal palace. And another possibility is that, of course, it's the temple. So maybe David wrote the psalm when his house was being built, or maybe he wrote it when he bought a plot of land and set up an altar and made preparations for the temple to be built there, and he called that place God's house. You can read about that in 1 Chronicles 21-22. through 22. Whatever the original occasion was for the writing of and singing of this psalm, it came to be used during the Feast of Dedication, or as it's now known and celebrated today, Hanukkah. And we're going to see that it is still so relevant and so precious for us as believers today. Psalm 30 is a psalm of thanksgiving. That's its genre, which means exactly what you think it means. As Tremper Longman puts it, the thanksgiving psalm is a response to answered lament. The psalmist, who prayed for God's rescue and God's help and for God to answer, once again lifts up his voice to God in song, but this time it's to give thanks for the way that God has intervened on his behalf. So you can recognize a Thanksgiving psalm by a restatement of the lament. The psalmist will say, I called and God heard. I was in distress and God stepped in. I was on the brink of death and God saved me. I have to admit that seeing this pattern in the Psalms of asking through lament and then receiving through God's rescue and then responding in thanksgiving, it's a really good reminder, but it's also a bit convicting for me personally. I often have to remind myself to give thanks when God answers a prayer and to be just as earnest in my giving of thanks as I was in my lament. In Psalm 30, David shows us how to give thanks in earnest, and he thanks God for delivering him in verses 1 through 3. Then he invites the congregation to join him in praise in verses 4 through 5. He tells the story of how God rescued him in verses 6 through 10, and then he returns to giving thanks for the Lord's deliverance in verses 11 and 12. 
But instead of looking at this psalm verse by verse or even section by section, we're going to consider four themes in his prayer. Pride, humility, glory, and joy. And my hope is that these themes teach us something about giving thanks to God and persevering in hope and in joy even amidst trial. So we'll start with pride. In verse 6, we learn how David ended up in a near-death situation. And the answer is pride. He says, Now as for me, I said in my prosperity, I will never be moved. And that's the thing about prosperity, right? It provides you with this false sense of security. David, as king of Israel, had it all. And at some point prior to the writing of this psalm, he started to give himself a little credit. He thought to himself, I will never be moved. I have built something that will last. My power is forever. My potential is unlimited. My success is based, I mean, at least in part to my savvy, to my hard work. And how many times have we done this? Life starts to feel comfortable and even safe, and we start to feel that somehow we contributed to the good things that we are enjoying. Like, we've secured our future now that we have this job, or now that our kids have reached this age, now that we're with the dream guy or the dream girl, now that we have a 4.0 GPA, now that we're retired, etc., etc. It goes on and on, and it's such a strange thing, but prosperity often lulls our awareness of God's provision. And that's so strange because we should be more aware of God's provision when we have it staring us in the face. But for various reasons, prosperity does lull our awareness. And it deceives us into thinking that we're the ones who earned our way to the top. And now we can never be knocked down, not even a peg. But here's what David forgot, and it's what we often forget in seasons of prosperity. The one who made us stand strong in the first place. The one who elevated us and set us on the mountaintop is God. David says in the next verse, verse 7, O Lord, by your favor you have made my mountain to stand strong. You hid your face, I was dismayed. In other words, God's favor, his grace is what secures us, not us, not anything that we've done or could do. The same God who breathed life into us is the one who appoints the time in which we live and the location, according to Acts 17. He is the one who not only knows the number of our days, but the one who actually numbers them. He has the power of life and death, and his sovereignty certainly extends to whether we are rich or poor in this life. 1 Samuel 2.7 says, The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low, he also exalts. So if we are prosperous, like David was at this season of his life, it is only because the Lord has allowed it. In David's case, he was blessed in every way. I mean, he had it all. And during his time as king, we know that David was greatly blessed, and it was because God chose to bless him. God's gifts should lead us to gratitude, but in David's case, his prosperity led him to pride. You know the saying, you know the proverb, pride goes before a fall. 
And Paul in the New Testament picks up that idea and that proverb and says something similar in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. He tells the Corinthians, let he who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. The moral of the story is that when God puts us on a mountaintop, it should humble us, not puff us up, because we wouldn't be on the mountaintop apart from him. I think about when people stand up at the Oscars and thank God or thank Jesus and then proceed to talk about all the hard work that they did to achieve their success. And don't we do that? We start to think of God's gifts as things that we deserve instead of what they actually are, a testament to his grace, which means his unmerited favor. David, at the end of the day, was just a lowly shepherd who God chose to be king. And it took the Lord bringing him low to remind him who had put him up on that mountain. And it took his mountain crumbling for him to remember just who holds the mountain peaks in the palm of his hand. So my question for us is, what is our mountain? David says, by your favor, you have made my mountain to stand strong. And whether he's referring to himself figuratively or to Mount Zion, which is a symbol for his strength and his power and his position, the point is clear. The Lord, by his favor, was the one who had planted David in this season of prosperity. So the question is, what do you consider to be your mountain? What do you fall back on when you feel unsafe? What's the thing that makes you think, well, if all else fails, I have got that. Is it your savings account? Is it the favors that people owe you? Maybe it's your good looks, your intelligence, your degrees. But as Job learned, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. God gives good gifts but he's never going to let us enjoy them so much that we lose sight of the best gift we could ever receive. And that's him. So that brings us to the next theme, which is humility. As we've seen, David's pride led to a downfall, a near death experience. In verses two and three, he describes how God answered his lament. He says, Oh Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have kept me alive that I would not go down to the pit. David found himself in need. So he cried to God for help and God healed him, he says. Healing in scripture can refer to physical healing, but it can also refer to spiritual restoration or even to emotional healing. For example, in Hosea, the prophet urges the people, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us, referring to God's forgiveness and his promise to restore the people despite their sin. In Jeremiah 14, verse 19, the people cry out, Have you completely rejected Judah? Have you loathed Zion? Why have you stricken us so that we are beyond healing? We waited for peace, but nothing good came, and for a time of healing, but behold, terror. The people in this passage are distraught because their sin has distanced them from God. And so they express their despair in terms of sickness and in terms of a desire to be healed. So whether David was physically ill or whether he was in need of spiritual restoration or emotional healing, he was, he felt on the brink of death. He thought he was going down to the pit 
The pit is Sheol, or Hades in Greek. It's the realm of the dead. David says to God, it was almost over for me. I thought I was a goner. I was as low as you can get without being dead. But God, God, you lifted me up. Because of David's pride, he was brought low. He was brought low because that's what it took to get him to look up. It often takes coming to the end of our rope for us to ask God for help. And that's what David does. In verse 10, he says he prayed, Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. O Lord, be my helper. I love that David doesn't ask for God to help him just this once, but he asks for God to be his helper, to stay by his side because he knew that he would need help again and again. His sin had gotten him into deep trouble, and it wouldn't be the last time. David recognized that he was in need of continual healing, continual deliverance, and continual spiritual renewal from God. So we see that David's heart did a 180. It went from pride to humility, from trusting in his prosperity to total realization of his helplessness and his dependence on God. If you've trusted in Christ as your Lord and your Savior, at some point you repented of your sin. You acknowledged that you are a sinner and you realized your need for a Savior. So you cried out to Jesus to do that, to save you. You believed that his life and his death and his resurrection covered your sin, purchasing your forgiveness with his blood, and that this forgiveness and this union with God through him is yours forever by grace through faith. And that's wonderful if you have done that. And if you haven't, I would urge you to to not wait, to do it today. Well, in his book, Deeper, Dane Ortland explains that we don't just repent and believe at the moment of our conversion, whenever we first trusted in Christ. He says, the Christian life is one of repenting our way forward. Equally, he says, we live our whole lives by faith. Paul said not, I was converted by faith, but I live by faith. We don't merely begin the Christian life by faith. We progress by faith. It's our new normal. We process life. We navigate this mortal existence by a moment by moment turning to God in trust and hope at each juncture, each decision, each passing hour. We walk by faith, not by sight. That is, we move through life with our eyes looking ever up. Our posture is one of expectant empowering from above. I love that. And then he says, and I love this even more, repentance and faith, in a word, collapse. David's 180 turn from pride to humility shows us that that's what desperate situations in our lives are for. They're meant to remind us of our need for God and of his unending grace. God allows us to go down to the pit so that we look up to him. And the favor that we received before, the favor that led to the prosperity that we abused and focused on rather than the one who gave it to us, that favor that we thought that we earned was never earned. So it can't be lost even when we fail to appreciate it. Or as Paul would put it, where sin abounds, God's grace abounds still more. 
He is faithful even when we are faithless, and He will do whatever it takes to get us to collapse into Him in repentance and faith, to get us to throw ourselves upon Him, our gracious Helper. And this repentance and faith, this being in the pit and then looking up to the one who's mighty to save us, this collapse is for our good and for his glory. And that brings us to the next theme in the psalm, which is glory. In verses 8 and 9, David describes what he said to the Lord when he was in distress. He says, To you, O Lord, I called, and to the Lord I made supplication. And this is what he said. What profit is there in my blood if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your faithfulness? Essentially, David is saying, God, if I die, how can I praise you? How can I sing of your faithfulness if I'm just dust? And here, David is not concerned with life after death. Right now, he's focused on the purpose of life on earth, and he believes it's to praise God. So he appeals to God's glory. Or as David Mathis, a writer for Desiring God, puts it, he reasons with God on the basis of God's glory. In his distress, David sees the world rightly again. Everything and everyone has been created to magnify God. If there was no creation ever, God would still be infinitely glorious. But the whole purpose of creation, the whole purpose of your life and my life, is to magnify God's greatness. That is, to make God look as glorious as he is. So David's argument when he was in need was, hear me. Heal me and help me. Why? So that I can sing your praises. So that I can do what I was created to do. And then, interestingly, at the end of the psalm, David comes back to this idea of glory. He says at the end of verse 11, the beginning of verse 12, You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness, so that my soul may sing praise to you and not be silent. The phrase, my soul, is literally my glory. It means my whole being, all that I am. The turning point for David, when he was in the pit, was beholding, once again, the glory of God. In his pride, David had thought that he stood strong in his own strength. But once the Lord humbled him and rescued him, David remembered that the only thing worth doing in this life, the only thing that has lasting value, is magnifying the one who was holding him up. Instead of glorying in himself, he gloried once again in God. Instead of finding his significance and his success, his achievements, his assets, he found his significance in God. And you don't notice when you're just listening to the psalm, but David opens and closes the psalm by addressing God as my God. He calls God by his covenant name, Lord, eight other times throughout the psalm, but at the beginning and the end, he says, O Lord, my God. And I think it's intentional. Moving from pride to humility made David realize that all his significance 
In fact, his entire existence is about one thing. And I think we could sum it up in the words, I am his and he is mine. God deserves our utmost gratitude because he is the giver of all good gifts. And he's given us the best gift imaginable, himself. He is our God and we are his. I hope that just thrills your heart like it does mine. And that brings us to the final theme that we're going to consider in this psalm, and that's joy. Psalm 30 begins and ends with statements of thanksgiving. Verse 1 says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and have not let my enemies rejoice over me. And then verse 12 ends with, O Lord, I will give thanks to you forever. In between, we have, as David Mathis puts it, the story of David going from prosperity to the pit to praise. And we have some reasons why he's going to give thanks forever. Listen to verses 4 and 5 and 11 again. Sing praise to the Lord, you his godly ones, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. David calls on the congregation of Israel to sing with him. Sing and give thanks to God. Why? For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. David had just experienced firsthand the discipline of God. But what felt like wrath was really God's faithfulness. God allowed David's temporary pleasures in his own strength and his own prosperity to prove to be fickle and empty. And that process was so painful that David thought that he would die. But the reason God allowed it was so that David would return to God, the one in whose presence is fullness of joy, eternal joy, and at whose right hand there are pleasures forevermore. I really like, again, what David Mathis says about this. He says, when we sink the roots of our joy into the very nature and character of God, as verse 5 does, our roots of joy go down as deep as possible. Our joy, come what may, is grounded in who God is as the God of joy, who is infinitely happy. There is no greater foundation, no greater source, no greater reason for stability and security and genuine joy when our joy is hidden in God himself. That his anger, though real and painful, is but for a moment and his favor for a lifetime. Weeping may indeed tarry for the night, and it does. Oh, how often it does for many long nights. But in God, in God, morning is always coming. Just a little while longer, and joy comes in the morning and gets us through the night, knowing that more is coming. As we read Psalm 30 on this side of the cross, we know even more assuredly what David declared in this psalm. Joy always comes in the morning. Even the darkest night, when Jesus' body laid in the tomb, buried for three days, after he experienced God's full and furious wrath against sin so that we wouldn't have to, 
Even that darkest night ended when in the wee hours of the morning, Jesus rose from the grave, conquering death once and for all to bring us to God who is our exceeding joy. In Christ, we know that death, the death that God plucked David from, has lost its sting. Death has no victory. Mourning turns to laughing, to rejoicing, to dancing. Christ has removed our funeral clothes and wrapped us in gladness. In this life, we often experience joy and sorrow mingled together. We are, as Paul says, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And God's discipline of us in our lives, the author of Hebrews says, seems for a moment not to be joyful, but to be sorrowful. But he says to those who have been trained by it, later it yields good fruit. And elsewhere, Paul says that all our momentary sufferings are producing an eternal weight of glory. And this is all because of Jesus. So on this side of the cross, what David affirmed to the congregation of Israel centuries ago, we sing in unison with all the saints, with even greater certainty, weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. So that's Psalm 30. And this week, instead of praying together, I want to encourage you to remember a lament that you've raised to God at some point in the past. Think about a time of distress or of difficulty, any situation where you've felt like David that you were going down to the pit, a time when you needed healing, whether that was physical or spiritual or emotional, and God answered your prayer. And once you think of an instance and land on one, I want to encourage you to try writing a psalm of thanksgiving to God. And don't worry about being eloquent. Just tell God, honestly, thank you. Thank you for rescuing me. And then let that psalm be an encouragement to you that for every lament that you cry out to God in this season or in the future, God has an answer. We can trust him to be faithful because he is ours and we are his. And even if it feels dark and hopeless in the pit that you feel you're in, he will lift you up and we'll give thanks to him together forever. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the God Besotted Podcast. I'm so grateful for every opportunity that I get to share God's word with you so that we can all know God more deeply and love him and his people more. If you're loving this podcast, I would really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend, shared it on social media, wrote a review, left a rating, all those good things, and follow me on social media so that I can connect with you, so that I can hear your thoughts and your feedback on this series. Make sure you join me each Monday as we go through this Praying the Psalms series, and until next time, may we be God-besotted in all we do.